Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 115 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is Monday morning. It is March 25th. Spring break is over. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. How's your bracket? You know, it's actually, I can still win it all, I think, but it is not a pristine if, bracket. If, if, if all of the remaining, what, 31 game or uh, 15 games go exactly according to plan? You know, I had Yale going pretty far. <laughs> Oh, I, could have, I, could have, I could have told you about that. Uh, well, you know, you um, had to pick something. I do. I, Although but, this year, apparently, you, sh- you weren't supposed to pick any flyers. Very, so we'll talk at the end about how chalky it is. But yeah. anyway, um, national security law. I feel like some stuff has happened since yeah. last we recorded. You know, when you take two weeks off or, or take a full week off, we end up with a lot of things over two weeks. We've got some Trump-landia action. You Ooh. may have heard there was a thing with the Mueller report. Was um, there a thing? We'll talk about what there is and isn't to say about that, and we'll try not to go too far down the rabbit hole. And then we'll talk about uh, the, the Zervos litigation as well, uh, taking place in the New York state courts. Then we will turn our attention to a really interesting but very little noticed opinion by Judge Brinkema um, in the Al Shamari litigation. This one uh, could matter a lot over the long term, or it could be a short-termer. We're going to wrestle with that. It has to do with the extent to which a uh, certain international law concept may uh, take a bite out of the federal government's sovereign immunity from from suit, which is which is quite an important topic. Big deal. Uh, this ought to have somebody's attention. Indeed. Uh, we're going to turn our attention then to military justice. So military we, justice. What do, Steve, what have we got in the military commission realm? We have we've been neglecting the the multi layer. We have been neglecting the dip. Um, so even though we are still waiting for uh, the DC Circuit's decisions in in Nishiri and Ray Spears. We had a, a, a really, I think, important ruling from the Court of Military Commission Review on Thursday on remand in Al-Balul. There's a case we haven't talked about in Another a long Another Al-Balul decision. Um, and we also have, uh, this week, there's proceedings in the 9-11 trial, so I'm sure that there will be you know, some stuff coming out of that. Um, and then briefly, just because it's sort of related to the military commissions in the, on the broader uh, oeuvre of military justice, I want to talk about not bad. Um, and a legislative proposal that Gene Fidel and I uh, circulated over the break that I think is hopefully something that won't be that controversial and that folks can get behind. Very interesting. All right, we'll do that. And then we'll pivot, uh, while it's sort of loosely in the neighborhood of terrorism with Abelou, we'll pivot over to other terrorism topics. I want to note a, a Belgian decision I learned about through a, a really interesting post at EGIL. That's the European Journal of International Law, EGIL Talk, which is their blog. Um, we're going to say something about that and what its implications in theory, could be, say, for uh, U.S. extradition of terrorism suspects out of Belgium. And then we will take note of a certain once quite famous uh, terrorism-related defendant who's uh, been set free, where he's going next and what it all means. And then we'll close out that subtopic both with uh, uh, a general set of discussions about domestic terrorism, specifically uh, violent extremism in the white supremacist movement, um, and whether and to what extent the, the tools of counterterrorism that have been developed in relation to international terrorism uh, should be brought to bear, could be brought to bear in relation to domestic threats of that sort. And speaking of that sort of terrorism, we'll note the, uh, the latest development in the Caesar Sayak case. Mm. That's the fellow that last October uh, sent uh, IEDs basically through the mail or attempted to have them delivered to a variety of uh, former uh, government office holders and elected officials like Joe Biden, Cory Booker, John Brennan, Hillary Clinton, and so on. Uh, and once we're through all that, Steve, we got some serious frivolity. You finally finished True Detective? I finished watching um, True Detective. I saw, I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. I think it took me longer to watch it and it took them to film it. Uh, you know, maybe. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're getting ever closer to, to Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. I'm excited about that. And so, then also this pesky little thing on the NCAA tournament. We have the NCAA tournament. We'll do a little bracket review. And uh, just for good measure, I'll throw in my review of Hall & Oates, who I saw last week Ooh. in Vegas. You know I'll that, have a review of Vegas in general. Do you know that of the, of the 16 games involving um, the 16 games of the NCAA tournament this weekend, exactly one of them was won by the higher-seeded team? That's incredible. Um, that's that's rare. That is unusual. Yes. Get the statisticians uh, focused on that. Well, it's actually. Uh, I think I saw that it was um, the 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 team that was favored was sixteen and zero, um, and that that's the first time that's ever happened in the history of the NCAA tournament. Wow, that's so, incredible. Not uh, necessarily boring, but just sort of chalky. No, it is. Okay, so uh, before we get to all the frivolity, let's, Mueller. Uh, 
Speaking of frivolity, let's talk about uh, the Mueller report. So I think, uh, well, we, we have nothing to say about the Mueller report because we, like almost everybody else, haven't seen it. True. That seems to be a, a distinction lost on, on a lot of people. Everybody. everybody what, so I, my, so go over what, it, what is it we do know. We have a four-page letter from Attorney General Barr um, formally notifying Congress that he has received the Mueller report and summarizing what he calls its principal recommendations, um, including that the report um, did not did not directly conclude that there was evidence of collusion and conspiracy between members of the Trump campaign and Russia, senior Russian officials to influence the 2016 election. Right. So the the takeaway there is insufficient evidence was gained to proceed in the with an indictment. Yep. Um, which does mean nothing was obtained, but it does mean that they yeah. looked into this and didn't and find enough to indict. Find it there. Right? Right? Clearly, um, on obstruction, I think the report the the letters the letters frames the report as being more equivocal. Um, where Mueller refused to make a specific recommendation one way or the other on whether the president had committed obstruction. Um, there's a line in there about how the report doesn't, how it's, the, uh, it's not, the president doesn't, isn't clearly implicated, but he's not exonerated either. Right. So the takeaway, assuming, and I, I think we can safely assume, because I think it's sooner or later, yeah. people are going to oh, see yeah. the, the Mueller report, sooner. substantial parts of it. Um, so I have no reason to doubt that the, the four-pager both because I, I trust that Attorney General Barr would uh, play it straight, and, uh, and even if he wasn't inclined to do that, he'd, he'd be foolish not to play it straight. It leaves us with the conclusion that the evidence just isn't there to support claims that there was an actual conspiracy, yep. a criminal conspiracy to collaborate with the Russians, uh, on whether it's computer right. fraud and abuse act charges or, or election fraud, whatever it was. That's not going to be a case that's brought. And yep. so that's going to begin, barring unexpected events, that's going to re- begin to recede into the background. But the the question about obstruction of justice in the aftermath of it all um, remains a little bit of a, a less certain matter. Not enough to charge? Or at least, I mean, I don't know that. I mean, because Mueller, the report, sum, the letter summarizes the report as saying Mueller did not make a prosecutorial decision. Right. So it's a close call. Well, or, I, the, or not, maybe. It could wait, wait, be that again, he declined again, to. No, it just, I, I, that the, the letter makes it sound like Mueller, like for structural reasons, did not think it was appropriate, right, to make a recommendation one way or the other on obstruction and instead saw his job as to sort of provide the best evidence for and against and let other decision makers, whether that be Attorney General Barr, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein, or Congress, right. make the decision for him. So when we eventually see the full thing, people shouldn't be surprised if either of the following two things are true. One is that it actually lays out a pretty strong case for charges yeah. on obstruction, um, but says for various reasons it's not going to actually say so. It's going to put it to other decision makers, as you say. Or perhaps, actually, it's a stronger case than the apparently weak case for criminal conspiracy yep. on election yep. or other related matters, um, but it's still not above the above the bar, if you will. <laughs> Good pun. Yes. Um, all of which is just to say, I mean, I, I guess, I think everyone's overreacting to the bar letter, right? Like, I think everyone on both sides. So, you know, the president... You mean when the president says he's been totally exonerated in each and every respect? And the funny thing is, there's, there's a line, I mean, the bar letter quotes the Mueller report, right? That it, neither does it exonerate him. I thought that line is solely there to prevent the president from doing exactly what he did. <laughs> right? Just, I'm totally exonerated. Um, so he, well, They he, don't know him very well, do they? So I, I think people are totally... I, I think everyone's overreacting for three different reasons. So, reason number one, um, what's in the report could matter a whole lot separate from the top line. And so, you know, if we just flash back to the Starr report, right, when um, independent counsel Ken Starr produced his, you know, voluminous report on his investigation into President Clinton, you know, part of what I think really tipped the scales on public um, opinion, part of what I think seared in the public consciousness wasn't Starr's legal conclusions, making formal recommendations to Congress about imputable offenses. It was the factual narrative. Mm-hmm. It was the, you know, step, jot, for, jot for jot description of, you know, President Clinton's liaisons with Monica Lewinsky. Right, right. Um, it was the blue dress. It was the cigar. It was like, it was the stuff. Please, no more. <laughs> but I'm saying like, but right, I mean, that's, that's what we, that's what the, the impact the report had sure. on the public wasn't the law, it was the facts. And right. so, you know, who knows Right, exactly what the Mueller report's actually gonna 
you know, what are what are going to be? What if any similar jarring factual narrative is going to emerge from the that's Mueller right, report? That's right. And and of course, it's tempting to say that the the public narratives have been pre cooked all around. Yep. But especially from from the president's uh, Twitter account, um, the public narratives have been pre cooked to receive or not receive with via the lenses of confirmation bias or yep. or whatever cognitive bias you want to bring to bear here. Uh, either either just further evidence somebody's out to get him, or evidence that uh, you know indeed it, it was all crooked all along. Right. So big point. Number one is, you know, I really think the factual narrative is going to matter, even if the, it doesn't affect how we understand the top line. Um, big point number two, um, I, there are people out there arguing quite vociferously that this was a waste of time um, and that anyone who at any point defended any aspect of the investigation has a lot to apologize for. That's ridiculous. There's, thir- what, 36 indictments? 36 indictments. Um, you know, but also, I mean, like, so I, I look at someone like myself, right? And I look at what I wrote about the Mueller investigation. And, like, 95% of what I wrote on Twitter, on blogs, whatever, about the Mueller investigation was about its legality, right? It was about, like, you know, should the special, you know, is his appointment valid, right? Um, right. Can, his, can it be challenged? Like, should Congress pass legislation to protect his, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like, you know, I think Trump should be impeached. It was, I think Mueller is validly appointed and should be allowed to do his job. I don't think that the even if even if the factual narrative doesn't actually hurt the president the way that I think it might, right? Even if this all comes out as like a even if by the time we're done it really is like a ninety eight percent win for the president, that doesn't mean it wasn't worth it. Not 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 only does it mean that not only does it not mean it wasn't worth it. Pardon the double negative, um, but in fact, if that is the result, as was noted, I, there was a really neat post that uh, uh, Susan Hennessy and Michaela Fogel and and Ben and forgive me if there was a fourth author on that one. Ben, Wittes, I think Quinta and Matt were on Quinta too. and Matt were on as well. So Matt Kahn and, and Quinta Jurassic were all on this post yesterday at uh, Lawfare, pointing out that it is a it is a if it's correct and and if Mueller has so concluded, it certainly seems like it's correct that there's not enough evidence to conclude that a crime's been committed on the uh, collaboration or the conspiracy, I hate that word collusion, mm-hmm. conspiracy with the Russians, it's a tremendous public service for mm-hmm. a credible voice like Bob Mueller to say so. Um, and if it turns out that the fuller picture is also even more exonerating yeah. than that as the president is is predetermining, um, well, that's a public service too to know that. So, um, the game here is not simply to pin the tail on the donkey. No, the game is to find out what actually happened. Exactly. And so this leads me to three, which is... Um, I, I, I've noticed a bit of a disconnect between sort of two branches of people who I usually associate as being sort of the president's defenders, right? Some who are saying it's a waste, it's all crap, like this is it's a conspiracy, don't trust what's in the Mueller report when it comes out. And some saying, yes, now our focus should really be on the counterintelligence piece of it. Right. Um, like Mitch McConnell, of all people, said something, I think, quite po- quite useful yeah. about the counterintelligence aspect of the investigation. Yeah. And that's a threat I don't think we ought to lose. Like whatever the president's personal culpability. And, you know, we may learn more about that from the Mueller report and we may not. The headline here is the Russians freaking interfered in the 2016 presidential election. And we should be thinking about how to like, you know, we should all be willing to acknowledge that A, that happened. B, it's a serious problem, and C, we should all be invested in trying to prevent it from happening again. Well, perhaps turning off the fire here, so to speak, will enable more people who should be saying, let's focus it. on that. Well, by your own account, you, you just said that some people who have not been emphasizing that before yeah. are now beginning to turn attention to that. So that's a that's a good development. How about here. this? I doubt enough will. I, it, fair enough. Um, but now, but all this to say, yeah. right? I mean, so so you know, I you know, I don't think. I think anyone who thought the Mueller investigation was going to like end with President Trump walking out of the White House in handcuffs, right, was yeah. t- was spinning themselves. Well, there were loads of people thought that. And that was, you know, the 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 centrality of Russia uh, as a conspiracy object with the, the idea of a conspiracy between the campaign and the president himself, knowingly collaborating with the Russians. Uh, many people said early on, and I'm going to cite someone in particular who was really savvy about this. Julian Sanchez mm-hmm. at, at Cato yeah. uh, was saying from the word and just security and and just security, uh, saying from the beginning that um, it's probably a big mistake to to focus so much on that because that's the least likely thing to be yeah. true of the many possibly problematic things that were happening. The idea that you're actually going to find a smoking gun showing that that he was actually working with the Russians, uh, if that were to have been the case, it would have been a huge deal, of course. But it was not likely to be the case, and it and it creates a situation. Situation where now that you've gotten to the point where right. the Mueller report comes out and says, "Yeah, there's there's no no not enough evidence of a crime there," um, it enables the president to say, "See, nothing to see here." More broadly, when in fact there's and, plenty to see here. Well, there's a lot to talk about yep. here. Yeah. Yep. Um, and Quinta, I think Quinta's made the same point. I mean, she wrote she wrote a Washington Post op-ed in 2017 that I keep coming back to. I think the title is like "Why Robert Mueller Won't Save Us." 
right? And yeah. basically, like, you know, there are so many different things about President Trump's presidency with respect to the Mueller investigation specifically and in general that should be deeply problematic, if yeah. not thoroughly, like, you know, disqualifying. And yet we're all distracted by the big shiny light. That's right. And so the, the, the acute version of that is thinking that it all stands or falls on did he actively collaborate with the Russians. Right. Um, the broader and I think even more pervasively problematic version of this is just that you've got to find the crime. Yep. Where's the prosecutable crime? Right. As opposed to norm violations and doing things that are antithetical to U.S. national security interests, to larger public interest, and to the fabric right. of our Constitution. So, so I've been listening. I, I made, a, I made a, uh, in retrospect, really bad decision to listen to the second season of Slate's Slow Burn podcast uh, this week. Yeah. Um, and the second season is all about um, the Clinton impeachment. The first season was this fantastic look at the you know Watergate and the and the, and the yeah. Nixon kerfuffle, um, and one of the things that's remarkable is like you know the final version of the Starr report and the final version of what the president was actually impeached for was so radically distant from right what the independent counsel had initially been appointed to investigate. It had so remarkably little to do with Whitewater or Travelgate yeah, or any right. of the actual like so you know I. I, th I think the, the narrative that, like, this is only bad for President Trump if he or his family is personally connected to direct Russian interference, um, I think completely misses the larger point that there's still a lot here to, to see and to be seen. And that the fact that Mueller has finished his report, you know, isn't the end of the story. We still have to see the report. There are still the these sort of tangential investigations being pursued. There's still, right, the Southern District of New York has a couple of open cases arising out of, but not directly related to the Mueller investigation. So it's not just that the president isn't out of trouble politically, right? It's that he also may not even be out of trouble legally, even if you cared about, even, even if that was your sine qua non. It could be that he's not out of trouble legally, but he is largely out of trouble politically at this point, because he's he succeeded in making the Russia collusion story uh, the central thing. Well, and that's well, time will tell. And that's unfortunate because, I mean, I think it's, you know, Russian collusion was the worst case scenario, but there are so many unpresidential, problematic features of this whole story that fall short of the president, you know, knowingly, consciously yeah. participating in the scheme to... Soon soon the election mania will subsume all of this. Oh, gosh. Uh, before we leave Trumplandia, there, what's this litigation going on with the former apprentice uh, participant? Yeah, so, so further to sort of like Mueller not being the end of it, right? I mean, so... Um, there's still, right, the sort of Stormy Daniels payment kerfuffle going on in the Southern District of New York. Um, but then there's also the Summer Zervos civil suit against President Trump. It's a tongue twister, the Summer Zervos civil suit. Uh, how about defamation suit? Defamation um, suit. So uh, Summer Zervos um, is a former, what, apprentice contestant, right, who sued, um, the, the, basically claimed that can't, then candidate Trump um, engaged in various acts of defamation on the campaign trail. Um, and sued for damages in state court. And President Trump had argued that um, as president, he can't be sued civilly, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, the Supreme Court has said, um, actually, a sitting president can be subject to civil suit as long as it's for conduct that predated his time in office. That's Clinton versus Jones. Mm -hmm. But Clinton versus Jones reserved the question of whether a different rule would apply in state court as opposed to federal court. Um, right, like the, the states might be more constrained from entertaining such a suit. Right. That's like the, so the Justice Stevens, who I think wrote the majority opinion in Clinton versus Jones, says you know there might be supremacy clause concerns yeah. from allowing a state court to entertain such a suit. Anyway, the trial court in New York had ruled way back in the fall of 2017 that no, as a matter of fact, the it cashes out the same way. Um, that what's good for federal federal court is good for state court. So um, while we were away. The uh, appellate division of the first department. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> first department's Manhattan, right? Uh, Manhattan and, and the Bronx? Bronx. I want to say Manhattan Maybe and the Bronx. White Plains? No, 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 no. Just yeah. Manhattan and the Bronx. The Southern yeah. District is White Plains. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's actually, it's a really, where the first department and the Southern District overlap versus where they don't, and where like the second department and the Eastern <laughs> District overlap versus where they don't. Anyway. Um, so I never understood how how New York City had two U.S. attorneys. Right. Right. Um, so the the appellate division for hey, the first department. Jets, Giants, Mets, oh, Yankees, yeah. Rangers, Islanders. Dude, you're distracting me here. The Nets, appellate division. Knicks. Oh no, the Nets are somewhere else. But then they're back. They're Anyways, in Brooklyn. Go on. Well, they were in New Jersey for a while. 
That's still New York. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, so the appellate division of the first department um, ruled by a three to two vote uh, about 10 days ago, um, affirmed basically and said, yes, president can be sued in state court. There are two dissenters though. And so I think it's quite possible now that if there's no, if, if they can't get the appellate division to certify the case to the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in yep. New York, yep. counterintuitively, the Supreme Court is the lowest court. Um, I. I think there's both the avenue for and the appetite for taking that decision to the Supreme Court and asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on whether Clinton versus Jones applies in state court. Interesting. Okay. So, All right. Well, that'll be. I, it seems. It seems right to me that the rule would be the same in both cases. So I mean, I, I don't wrote, see I, it really inflected on the on the supremacy clause yeah, angle I mean, so I much a, as the interference with the president. I wrote angle. a post for NBC right after the trial court's ruling about why I thought that this was absolutely the right answer. Um, that I understand the supremacy clause concerns, but there is a statute on the books, the federal officer removal statute, that allows any defendant who's a federal officer to remove any case from state court upon the assertion of any federal defense. What that means in practice is if the president has any federal statutory or constitutional claim that, you know, yes. is not being properly... Uh, so you can get it to... Yeah. If uh, And the fact that he hasn't removed this case to federal court, I think, tells us everything we need to know about whether there's some federal interest not being properly respected by the state court. Interesting. All right. So let's leave Trumplandia and journey to uh, sovereign immunity, Landia. Uh, we've got uh, in the Al Shamari litigation mm -hmm. where a, a government contractor is being uh, khaki, C-A-C-I, is being sued for uh, torture, basically. At Abu Ghraib? Uh, uh, yeah, at Abu Ghraib, no less. Uh, they had filed a third-party complaint uh, bringing the U.S. government into it. It's complicated, but they're basically seeking indemnification or contribution as needed. Um, and, and then interestingly also, there's a breach of contract claim alleging bad faith on the U.S. government's part because the U.S. government is refused to produce certain discovery Khaki wanted to be able to use to defend itself. Um, the U.S. government responds to this third-party complaint attempting to pass the buck on to them by seeking dismissal and also moving for summary judgment. But the dismissal was on grounds of federal sovereign immunity. And that's what produced a really remarkable and somewhat lengthy opinion from Judge Brinkema basically saying, nope, use Kogan's takes a big bite out of that in what she characterizes, I think correctly, as a case of first impression for any federal court. Mm -hmm. Does use Kogan's as a concept international law actually constitute an, um, an implicit uh, exception to the ability the federal government otherwise would have to claim immunity from, from suit. So uh, how do we sink our teeth into this one, Steve? Well, let's start by defining the use Kogans. Good idea. Um, so use Kogans, J-U-S space C-O-G-E-N-S, um, right, is this idea in international law that there are certain norms that are so universally accepted and acknowledged that they are non-derogable. That is to say, there are no circumstances in which any country can lawfully depart from them, suspend them, otherwise get around them. Right. So if it's it's the idea that there's customary international law and there's customary international law and that some rules of customary international law have reached such stature that no treaty, no anything, no statute, can circumvent no constitution. It. That well, it's a you're, that's where it starts getting interesting. Yeah. From within the realm of international law, the only question should be: Is there anything in international law one could do to not be bound by this rule? And the idea of use Kogan's is nope, no, not for these things. Right. Use, the the definitional class. Right. The, the 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 definition itself answers the question because by definition, if it's a use Kogan's norm, it's something that a country has no legal authority to depart from. Right. Which which is raises all sorts of interesting questions about whether and how the law could possibly evolve from there. But okay. that, that said, um, the real interesting question is, here is how does the existence of that idea, which right. we will assume for the sake of argument, I think correctly, yeah. that it's widely said that the rule against torture is such a rule. It's usually on the list mm -hmm. um, of, of ones people say, like, look, there are a few things that are well right. settled. Torture, genocide. Yeah, a few other things. Yeah. So accepting that, how does it interact with domestic law? Um, the, the opinion, I'm ultimately not persuaded. I'm curious whether you were. So I, I'm not persuaded the way she writes it. I'm not sure she's wrong. Is that a fair, is that a sure. fair answer? Yeah. Right. So, so let's back up a second. I mean, let, me, let me do 30 seconds on federal sovereign immunity. Um, so the Supreme Court has held, dating all the way back to the case of U.S. versus Lee, which, by the way, is a fantastic teaching case from 1882, where um, it's all about how the U.S. came to possess Arlington. Oh, nice. And oh, yeah, yeah. That Lee. That Lee. Yes. <laughs> those Lees. Let's bury some dead some on war dead. that guy's uh, right. property. Where, right? where should we create a cemetery to war dead? I think we've talked about this before we at have. some point in the yeah, series. We yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so anyway, uh, ever since Lee, the Supreme Court has recognized that as a background constitutional principle, 
the federal government has sovereign immunity. Now, there are reasons to quibble with this. I mean, sovereign immunity in English law was based on the understanding that the king could not be sued in his own court. Um, we don't have, right? The, 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 we have independent courts. One could argue that there's an, an inconsistency between sovereign immunity and an independent judiciary, but I digress. Um, so in a world of sovereign immunity, the rules for the federal government are actually pretty clear, which is um, the default is that the federal government has sovereign immunity, but Congress is free at any time and for any purpose to waive that immunity. And Congress has in many respects, although not all respects, Bobby, waived the federal government's sovereign immunity from a wide array of claims, virtually all non-damages claims and virtually all non-tort claims. Right. Um, the tricky part of Judge Brinkman's analysis is her argument that even though Congress never formally waived the federal government's sovereign immunity from use Kogan's claims, um, that that waiver was sort of baked in, right, to the Constitution. Right. She she gets there, in effect, by saying, look, sovereign immunity is, a, is, a fed, is federal common law. And further, she ultimately says, it's actually created by international law, which then gets imported into federal common law. Which, which I means think, we get right, to talk th- about the schooner exchange. Right. Which which also, it's it's not clear to me that's actually the best conception of what federal mm-hmm. sovereign immunity is. Right. In, especially insofar as you're right, which I think you are, that it, it's, it, it is a carryover from an earlier past concept of the sovereign simply not being subject to suit in its own courts. That That is, to me, a very domestic law yes. conception. Uh, so. It, it, it may or may not make this something of constitutional stature. It's kind of like the state secrets privilege debate in that respect. Well, she, I mean, she but, looks, it de- right. but it doesn't make it dependent on notions of international law, in my understanding. Well, so she relies heavily on foreign sovereign immunity. Um, and with regard to foreign sovereign immunity, Bobby, I think she's exactly right. I mean, I think it's pretty yeah. clear. Foreign sovereign immunity is certainly a creature of, of international law. law. And that like principles of comity um, and, and deference, right, I think sort of factor heavily into that. Um, Right. The question is whether the same rules would apply to domestic sovereign immunity. Now, I, I see this as of a piece with the broader debate over whether international law can ever be understood as a constraint on the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and, absolutely. Right. Which is the main way I have trouble with what she's doing here. Yes. And I think part of why you and I may disagree, right? Because, so for example, in the Article 3, right? I mean, we're going to talk about al in a few minutes, right? I mean, the to me, the principal objection to U.S. military commissions trying non-international war crimes is that I think Article 3 properly understood limits the jurisdiction of military commissions to offenses that are violations of international law and not just what we say international law is, right? So I think this actually nicely tees up the debate over those who think that the Constitution is, at least in some respects, constrained by international law and those who think it's yeah. not. And those who think it's not are not going to like this ruling. Exactly. That, and so that there's one divide. Another key part, uh, and, and if one doesn't want to reach yeah. that stage, you can still disagree with the outcome because a key part of this is her conclusion that use Kogan's norms are not simply substantive rules, but also there's a procedural requirement that she says is also equally of stature in its uh, plenary bindingness. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's turns out, surprise, surprise, these use Kogan's norms, which many of our listeners won't have any have heard of before as a concept, turns out on this model, they're, they're the peak of our rule of recognition in our system, uh, above our constitution even, um, or at least read right into it, include, include uh, a right to a remedy that's more robust even uh, than what we have sometimes agreed to by treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, she and so that's another place where, where I'm not persuaded by the analysis that, that she's made the claim clearly enough that yeah. you, it's not just that you have to behave a certain way under a use Kogan's norm, but you must also provide an, an actionable right to go into court to litigate it in some fashion. Um, that seems to me to, to prove more than, than can be established. I think that's right, although I'm not law. sure you need that to reach her result, right? I mean, so again, I go, I go back to the, re- the reasoning versus the result, right? That the notion that the U.S. is not entitled to sovereign immunity on claims arising out of violations of use Kogan's norms does not, to me, depend upon recognizing recognizing that international law therefore compels the creation of a remedy because here Khaki had a remedy, right? Like the, the question was a defense, not a cause of action. If you, if you uh, see that, right? Yeah, but you could reframe the same argument and make it a, a non-self-execution point, which is kind of interesting here because we do actually have a treaty, which unlike unlike customary international law actually has stature in our supremacy clause. Um, Excuse me. 
Yeah. Customer, use Kogan's norm. So the supremacy clause is the Constitution, the statutes, and the treaties of the United the States. The laws of the United States, which includes at least some species of federal common law, as the Supreme Court recognized yeah, yeah, in yeah, Sosa but, versus Alvarez Machine. But treaties obviously have the more explicit stature. I agree. And we, so here more we have a treaty. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> it's, it's a lot more explicit. I agree. In that it is explicit. Um, <laughs> the torture, the Convention Against Torture, has a provision, and, and Judge Brinkman relies upon it. Not noting that it's expressly uh, uh, subject to an understanding uh, or declaration. How about Article 16? Yeah, yeah. No, um, I think it's Article 14, oh, I yeah. think. Yeah. The remedies provision yep. is within the scope of things the United States declared to be non-self-executing part yep. of the treaties. Yep. The effect of her I'm analysis— teaching that today. Oh, yeah. Perfectly on, on point. Seriously. The effect of her analysis is basically to say, like, well, that doesn't really matter because it turns out, surprise, surprise, you actually were already bound by this larger ephemeral process. So listen, I, again, I mean, I, I understand why that sounds weird. If you accept the underlying premise, I'm not sure it matters, right? So so if you accept, for example, that some federal common law, that if, let, me, let me start at the beginning. Yeah. Step one, is there any such thing as federal common law, right? There you go. right. Um, the Supreme Court says yes, right? Even after Erie, there are specialized categories of federal common law. And one of them, Bobby, the Supreme Court says is use Kogan's violations of international law, right? That's Sosa versus Alvarez machine, right? That that. Insofar as the alien tort statute authorizes suits by an alien for a tort committed violation of the law of nations, that can include use Kogan's violations because that's custom international law and therefore federal common law. Um, once you accept that use Kogan's norms are federal common law, right, I think it's a lot less of a step. I think it's a lot less of a leap to get to the notion that therefore the constitutional sovereign immunity that the federal government possesses absent congressional in, uh, intervention is moderated, right, by this federal common law principle that use Kogan's as part of our laws. Well. That that would be a much more compelling uh, argument, especially because it would avoid the need to try to argue, as as is said here, that even the people—that's yep. capital yep. P—the people yep. have no ability to change this uh, this outcome. So, the, but of course, I mean, do you disagree that the people? I mean, could Congress pass a statute authorizing torture? Could Cong well, so in, in the U.S. system, insofar as you have a dualist system, which right. I believe is common ground that we do, yeah. they could do this, and we would clearly be in violation of, of uh, international law. But, but, the, but domestic, what the consequences? But the be? domestic, well, whatever the consequences can yeah. be in international law, it's the same recurring problem all international law but, violations no, no, tend to have. No, no, but, but it, are you saying the statute would be unconstitutional? That's the question, right? I don't, this I is, don't see how the, the power to make a statute could be, I guess your argument would have to be that Congress has no power to make that statute. That's the question, right? So which, which inherently places international law above the lawmaking power of Congress. I disagree. I disagree. It, does, it, 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 it incorporates international law into the limits on Congress's regulatory power, which, of course, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 10 already does by limiting Congress's power to define and punish offenses to those that are against the law of nations. So there it was done explicitly. True. This would do it where it's not done explicitly. I understand. And so, I, that's where I'm not on board. And this has always been to me the hard question about use Kogan's, right? That in a world in which you accept the idea of use Kogan's norms, that they're universal, that they're non-derogable, it, you know, it seems to me you can't both accept that and think that Congress can override it because then Congress would be derogating. No, but you, you avoid that problem in the dualist system by accepting that it is consistent with the U.S. legal framework to be in violation of international law at the same breath that you're consistent yeah. with domestic okay. law. It's a later in time rule, Fair right? Enough. Yeah. So, anyway, anyway, so that's it's obviously got big implications. <laughs> yeah. I think you could well see a Fourth Circuit opinion on this, and I would well, who would appeal. So this is this is one of the awkward things about how this comes out. So can I, can I just do yeah, the yeah, posture yeah, for one second? Through, yeah, run through this. So the, the Judge Brinkema, I think, knows knows a little bit of what she's doing, right? I mean, because so she denies the government's motion to dismiss, but then she grants summary ah, judgment I see, I to see. the government right. um, on the ground that basically once you get past sovereign immunity, yeah, the merits waived, of Kaki's right? claims are waived by their two thousand. 2007 contractual agreement to sort of resolve all claims. Right. So it may so it may just sit there as an opinion that the government may or may not have well, to so, contend with in some other litigation. So just to be, to be a Fed courts nerd for a second, right? I think legally the government is entitled to appeal the denial of the motion to dismiss. Right. Right. That I don't think that that would be an advisory opinion. I don't think it would be moot. Um, I'm just not sure if you're the government you want to, right, as opposed to a, you know, because district court decisions aren't precedential. And so if you're the government, right. do you really want to take a unnecessary, because you won, 
right, appeal to the Fourth Circuit where you don't know what you're going to get versus having this one sort of stray so, district so court that is, there. That is uh, quite a clever positioning to insul- potentially insulate it. Um, if they do pursue it, and I can imagine this is provocative enough, uh, this is some red meat, especially the bit about it being beyond the reach of the people themselves, let alone, you know, the Constitution. Yep. Um, it seems to me it could well be taken up if the pathway's there. And if it does get taken up, taken up, I would predict that what happens is it gets resolved on a clear statement rule, mm-hmm. that, that the idea will be that, look, you can make arguments both ways, but they're going to come down the side of to have an exception to sovereign immunity. Congress has got to expressly articulate it. I'd, I'd be shocked if the Fourth Circuit would actually but embrace this, this same so, but, reasoning. But all I want to say is for folks who sort of you know find this a little bit too weedsy, right? The broader point here is actually a question we come back to time and again in this field, which is when the U.S. has obligations under international law. Are those obligations only as good as Congress's willingness to affirmatively pass legislation to implement them? Or do the obligations have some teeth and effect, even if Congress hasn't seen fit? Right to to incorporate to enforce them. That's right, and yeah. we come at that all the time. Yeah, this is this is uh, an extremely acute version of a recurring issue. Now, speaking of recurring issues, maybe we should turn our attention to the military commissions. Um, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so Abalu. Um, what has happened to his sentence? Nothing. What what happened in this ruling? So what happened in this ruling? All right. So let's remind everybody who Al Balul is. So Ali Al Balul is um, what the propagandist is how he's often described, right? Al Qaeda, an Al Qaeda member whose involvement uh, involved at least uh, creation of promotional videos, etc., that sort of thing, in relation to to attacks. Um, but where are we in the litigation, and what was at issue here? So. Um, basically, Abulul was convicted on three counts in the military commission. He was convicted of um, solicitation, he was convicted of material support, and he was convicted of inchoate conspiracy. And he, folks might remember his case was the big, big test case for what we were just talking about, whether the military commissions may constitutionally try offenses that are not recognized as international war crimes. Um, the D.C. Circuit had thrown out in Albalul 1, way back in 2014, the Ambank D.C. Circuit had thrown out the solicitation and material support convictions on the grounds that they violated the ex post facto clause, even under clear error review, uh, plain, even under plain error review, pardon me. Um, and um, on the conspiracy count, the court had fractured and said it's not clear enough that it violates ex post facto um, under plain error. We'll send it back to... Um, you know, sent it back to the original three-judge panel for the other stuff. Uh, the three-judge panel had then held de novo that Abulul's conspiracy conviction violated Article 3 because it was not for a violation of the international laws of war. The en banc D.C. Circuit in October 2016 then totally mucked that up. Um, with no majority rationale, four of the nine judges held that um, under de novo review it was a constitutionally valid conviction because Congress had the power to depart from international law in the context of the military commissions. Um, Judge Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh, wrote the the principal concurring opinion. Three judges dissented and said, no, Congress can't authorize the military commissions. Um, And there were two sort of case-specific concurrences, one from Judge Millett, one from Judge Wilkins, that were enough to affirm the conviction without a rationale. Okay. Um, But because two of his three convictions had been vacated. The case had to be sent back to the CMC to, to the CMCR to see if the vacatures had any effect on the life sentence that Abdul had previously received. Uh, and so what we got on Thursday was the I had totally forgotten this was out there. Right. The, the rather belated um, on banc CMCR decision on remand from the DC Circuit, basically. And just to sort of not put too fine a point on it, I mean, the Supreme Court had denied cert in Abdul in 2017. Yeah. So this has been sitting out there for like a year and a half. Yeah. Um, well, they're so busy with all the other cases they deal with. So listen, I am usually a very, very harsh, sharp critic of the CMCR. <laughs> and I must confess that I think I finally found a CMCR decision that I don't hate. All right. Um, like, so what did, they, what did they rule? So there are two different things going on here. So first, um, they spent a lot of time talking about the scope of their review on remand. Um, and I think they basically get it right. They say, um, we can certainly review the sentence on remand, but we also have the power to review this different separate challenge that Al-Balul has raised to whether the entire commission lacked jurisdiction because his convening authority was appointed in violation of the appointments clause. 
Um, and the government had argued rather forcefully that at this late date, right, that this long into the proceeding, this, you know, this issue was no longer viable. And the CMCR correctly, I think, says, no, it's jurisdictional. And at least some of the argument depends upon intervening changes, right, in Supreme Court case law, the Lucia case, most importantly. So first on the sentence, they say, all right, so even though two of the three charges are gone, we still think life sentence. Yep. So you're not getting out any earlier. So be it. I mean, I think, you know, we, if, we, if we had four days, I could go through where I think they're a little bit too quick. But, you know, I don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, my God, it's a miscarriage of justice that they reaffirmed the original sentence. Okay. On the appointments clause issue, the basic issue is um, whether the convening authority of the military commissions is a principal officer. Um, who must therefore be nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, or that he or she can be an, is an inferior officer whose appointment can be done by, in this case, the Secretary of Defense. Right. And the CMCR, the government argued first that they're not even an officer, and at the very at the at the worst they're an inferior officer. And I think the CMCR largely gets this right. First, the CMCR says they're an officer after Lucia, especially. Yeah. But they're an inferior officer because they're subject to supervision by the right. Secretary of Defense. Yada yada yada. Um, Sounds right. I think this is all right. I mean, I, I hate to say this because I'm usually, you know, but um, I think you, it's all right. Your, your criticisms are, are more effective when you <laughs> occasionally find that they didn't get yep. something wrong. Um, but I will just say this. Um, it's also appealable, um, right? I mean, that, that insofar yeah. as this is part of the... And so, therefore, <laughs> back to the D.C. <laughs> therefore, here, here, here comes the Albalul train back yeah. to the... Might this be one where they, they give a more summary treatment yeah, to Yeah, I mean, I, listen, it's an interesting appointments clause question. It's a novel appointments clause question. It's an appointment, you know, the yeah. D.C. Circuit loves them some appointments clause. That's true. Oh, Lord. So... So, you know, the gift that keeps on giving, the Guantanamo. And meanwhile, we're still waiting for Nishiri. No, that's just incredible. Okay, now, staying with military justice. Yeah. You wrote an op-ed the other day, you and Gene Fidel. What, Indeed. What was that all about? So um, we, um, Gene and I, even before Larrabee, have been sort of worried for a long, long time about this weird gap in the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction over courts martial, where the only cases that the Supreme Court can hear from the military justice system um, are cases in which... Um, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, CAF, has agreed to hear the case or has heard the case, right? That if CAF turns away like a discretionary petition for review, there's no way to the, Supreme, no way to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, as of today, at least, this has no, as of today, that makes service members, the only criminal defendants in the country, who if they have some kind of serious federal statutory or constitutional objection to their conviction or sentence, aren't guaranteed of at least a chance to ask the Supreme Court to hear I their case. With the, I thought there always had to be the prospect Always had to be the prospect that one way or the other you can get to somebody yeah. who's got the Article Three power. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought that so too. But uh, so Dick Fallon taught me. So um, the government's response is, well, at the worst case scenario is they can go to habeas, right? But the standard review in habeas is incredibly deferential. A collateral attack on a military conviction um, is only viable if the military failed to give full and fair consideration to your claim, even if they got it totally wrong, right? right? So the concern is that you could have a service member um, who has a incredibly serious, perhaps even meritorious constitutional objection that because the lower military courts, you know, considered it, yeah. would have no opportunity to ask the Supreme Court to review this conviction and no meaningful opportunity to challenge it through habeas. Um, this, we think, is a serious problem. So we basically have proposed legislation called the Service Members Equality Act, um, and we wrote an op-ed um, fixing the gap, basically saying the Supreme Court should treat CAF like any other state Supreme Court with discretionary yeah. jurisdiction where you have to wait, right? There's an exhaustion requirement. Yeah, CAF right. is allowed to go first. But if CAF denies review, that does not preclude the Supreme Court from reaching over CAF. SMEA seems like a good idea. Thank you. Although, so I think service members is one word, so we uh, C, C-A. the C Act. C Act. The C- the C- oh, no, the Navy? You can't have it just be the C Act. Yeah, we need some Army thing. The we need C- a better Act. name. Yeah. So, listeners, well, Space you know, Force. Yes, yeah, sp- <laughs> Space Force. Anyway. All right, well, that, that actually sounds, that sounds very reasonable. You have my support. Yep. Um, thank you. Yes, yes. I, I, I thank you for your support. <laughs> are, right. our, are our listeners too young to remember? What was it? Um, Bartleby and James. Uh, Bartleby and James. Right. Thank you for your support. Um, was that which one did Bruce Willis talk for? That was Seagram's. Yeah, yeah. No, talking Bar- about wine cooler. Bartleby and James the was like the old. Were the old? Was, the old right, guys. The old right? guys. Yeah, yeah. Was Wilford Brimley involved in that, or was it just a Wilford Brimley esque character? It feels. I, I, I'm not picturing. Like Wilford Brimley sounds right to me, but I'm not picturing it right Thank now. Thank you for your support. Some some uh, intrepid listener will will know this. Um, all right, so let's pivot over to terrorism related developments. Um, first, I want to note this Belgian decision. Now, full credit here. I. I learned of this only thanks to an interesting uh, EGIL talk post 
by, and, and Thomas, I'm going to mispronounce your name, I suspect here, but I'll spell it after I try to say it. Thomas Van Poke, uh, P-O-E-C-K-E. Uh, it's a really cool post describing this fascinating appellate court decision in, in Belgium that disallowed the prosecution of about 39 people plus two media companies who were uh, facing charges that, as near as I can tell from this this considerable distance, uh, were material support type charges, charges uh, linking them to the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party, which, as listeners will know, the PKK has uh, long been mixed up in violence against the Turkish government. The Turkish government very much categorizes them as a terrorist organization, as do many other governments. Um, so what, what was going on here? What was the issue that, that prevented these prosecutions from going forward? It's what's called the IHL Exclusion Clause, the IHL, which is, of course, the acronym for International Humanitarian Law, or for the non-international law listeners, that's that's basically the law of armed conflict, the laws of war. Um, the IHL exclusion clause is language that uh, first started appearing in 1997 in, uh, one, in one of what became a series of international treaties calling for uh, member states to those treaties to criminalize various acts of terrorism, uh, the, the initial one being the 1997 International Covenant for the suppression of terrorist bombings. And the, the whole idea here is you have these treaties where the, the parties to the treaty say, yes, we will we will uh, proscribe and punish the following acts of terrorism. Um, and there's an IHL exclusion clause in some of these treaties that says, and I'm going to quote from just one version of this, um, the uh, states are not, of the states that are criminalizing some particular act of terrorism don't include or shouldn't include, quote, actions by armed forces during periods of armed conflict, which are governed by IHL. So the idea is it's it's yet another example of where many states, the United States included, will go out of their way in any international negotiation that talks about terrorism to make sure that the term or the concept is defined in a way that excludes the actions of state armed forces or qualifying regular armed forces. Uh, and so the idea here is that those those actions, when committed by a state's armed forces, might be war crimes, and you could prosecute them as such, but you're not supposed to call them terrorism and subject them to your domestic terrorism laws. Uh, Belgium, unlike most other European uh, states, has made an IHL exclusion uh, clause part of its domestic criminal law for all of its terrorism-specific crimes. That is not all of its domestic criminal laws, but the ones that are terrorism specific, including the ones they were trying to use to charge the PKK members, uh, which included a requirement of showing that the PKK is a terrorist organization based on its conduct. And the long and short of it is the court concluded that uh, there is a state of armed conflict that the PKK is involved in, that the evidence of terrorism adduced as to the PKK's terrorist nature all came from that faraway combat zone and that the PKK constituted armed forces. Now, this was in contrast to earlier Belgium cases in which al-Shabaab, the Islamic State, Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the, the former name of the al-Qaeda arm in Syria, uh, none of those were found to count as armed forces. But this time, the PKK was treated that way, and, and that was the end of it. Now, I mention this not so much because it's an interesting, uh, if unusual, quirk of Belgian criminal law, but because it has implications, I think, for uh, the prospect of extradition to the United States in future terrorism-related cases. Let's say Belgium's got their hands on somebody we want to charge with material support relating to their involvement in some particular uh, international terrorist organization. Um, if they apply this sort of analysis, the IHL exclusion clause, it at least could lead to a result in which uh, dual criminality is not satisfied because it wouldn't be a, it might be some other crime perhaps under uh, Belgian domestic law, but finding that close analog to something like material support might become impossible. And so this could be something that if it were to spread to other countries begins to create a, uh, a series of holes, if you will, in the prospects for extradition. All right. Now, somebody we didn't have to extradite, but who we had pretty much from late fall, I guess it was, 2001, John Walker Lind. <laughs> John Walker Lind, once pretty famous, uh, I would say from 
Fall 2001 and for the next several years. The American Taliban. Everybody knew him by that name, the American Taliban, a kid from the San Francisco Bay Area who had gone abroad, joined up with the Afghan Taliban pre-9-11, was fighting with them at the time of the 9-11 attacks, is among those who were in that initial batch of prisoners the Northern Alliance held at Mazar-e-Sharif. He was there, uh, had been interviewed by Johnny uh, Spahn, the CIA officer who was uh, the, the was killed in the prison uprising there. Uh, John Walker Lynn ends up in U.S. custody in the aftermath of that prison uh, attempted revolt. And then when he identifies himself as an American, ends up back in the United States, prosecuted in the Eastern District of Virginia in front of Judge Ellis, I believe, who we've talked Indeed. about on this show. Um, so his sentence is up on May 23rd. He walked out. My understanding is that a few years ago, he ad- obtained Irish citizenship huh. based on his, I believe, his grandmother's Irish citizenship. So if you're, if you have a grandparent who was who was born in Ireland, I do not. Well, if you had that, you too could be an Irish dual citizen. And at least I don't know if he's done it yet, but the plan was he was just going to pretty much head that way. Ah. Um, Erlingus. Yeah, and so there's a there's a huge amount of, of you know, buzz out there. And if you go online and search for this, you'll see a lot of angry postings, people saying, what the heck? Why is this guy going free? He's going free because his sentence was over. Was that's, say, how that thing, that's how that works. <laughs> how, how dare the United States release right. people who have served their criminal sentences? Right. But the underlying angst about somebody well, walking right. out of jail where they're convicted beyond a reasonable doubt of yes. terrorism-related crimes, or in this case, membership in, a, in or providing himself as um, support and resources to a terrorist organization or one that was sanctioned under IEPA? Because I think maybe it was an IEPA-based conviction. That sounds vaguely familiar in the yeah. cobbles. But, but here's so, – so the John Walker Lynn case, Bobby, it seems to me is a good sort of um, reminder that there are a whole lot of people – I mean, you've been, you've been ringing this bell for years, but not many other people have. There are a whole lot of people who are convicted of terrorism and terrorism-related offenses in the early part of the last decade – and sentenced to somewhere between 10 and 15 and sometimes 20 years, yeah. whose prison sentences are winding down. And I think this administration is going to have some difficult decisions to make um, when some of those cases come to fruition because, you know, not everyone is John Walker Lynn with an Irish grandmother. So Ooh, the, that's the, somehow we have to get Irish grandmother into Irish the episode title. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So there will be some subset of these people who are American citizens. Not everyone has an Irish grandmother. Not everyone has. Well, some do, but not, the, not. This podcast does not have an Irish grandmother. I got to think, do I? No, I do not. <laughs> uh, so the, if we break down the type of people who are going to be walking out of jail, you've got the American citizen subset. And as to them, you know. Probably it'll be a bunch of noise, but you do hear some interesting talk that'll that'll lead to public policy controversies about should there be a, a, a notification or registration type system so people know that certain categories of defendant, like a sex offender registry, I've seen reference to that. Uh, you might have the occasional attempt to, to take certain people and try to revoke their citizenship. If they have dual citizenship, that becomes yep. more plausible, yep. uh, although I've not seen that suggested in his case. Um, for the non-citizens, yeah. you'll you'll see them uh, going from the the Bureau of Prisons custody into removal proceedings, and then we get into sort of a messier conversation about sort of how long. I mean, this is the Supreme Court had this case right right before our last episode, Nielsen versus Priya. Oh no, this is while we were away because I was in Los Angeles when this happened um, last week. The Supreme Court had this really important uh, immigration detention case, Nielsen versus Priya, about how long the government can wait between when someone finishes serving their criminal sentence and when they actually pick them up for immigration detention. And the court says, however long it wants. Um, but that doesn't answer the question of how long can they then be held right. in immigration detention. Which will matter in the subset of cases where it's not easy to actually remove them from the country because of whatever's going on in the in the receiving state. Right. And so all this is to say that I think there's a reckoning on the horizon that I don't think we're going to have in John Walker Lynn's case yeah. for both his, because both of his citizenship and, and his, his self, Irish citizenship. Yeah, and his self-removal. Um, it'll be a thing in Ireland, I guess. Uh, what'll have to happen probably is there will come a moment where some want, everything will be fine with a lot of these cases, as it has been. It's not like people haven't gotten out of jail in similar circumstances. I think about some of the members of the Lackawanna Six who mm-hmm. went, some went to jail and, and some have long since been out and you never heard another word about it. But there will be something that happens at some point and that'll cause everyone to go bonkers about it. Recidivism will become another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, real quick, in, in the interest of time, let's actually maybe even save the the domestic counterterrorism sure. topic for, for next week. But you want to say a word about New Zealand. Well, that's what I was wanting to kick over, actually, to next uh, week. Okay. I, I was wanting to have a discussion about 
um, with the increasing attention being paid, especially in the aftermath of the, the horrific attack in, in New Zealand, the increasing attention being paid to uh, the violent extremism from the white supremacist movement, and including uh, talk about how there's more international connectivity amongst adherents to this perspective uh, than you might think. Um, at what point do we begin to look at whether some or even all of the tools of international counterterrorism that we've become so familiar with over time, things like material support uh, as a charge, uh, the, the various foreign intelligence-focused investigative tools are available, uh, and other things. When do these start getting mapped onto the domestically or sometimes perceived as, but maybe not entirely domestic threats we're talking about? But let's let's save that uh, for next week in the interest of time. Okay. And and I'll, one quick, well, can yeah. I add one quick breaking yeah, news? Please. Um, we've talked before about the, Amer- the, the American Institute for International Steel case in the Court of International Trade. Do we have a ruling? We have a ruling. Yeah, hot damn. Okay, uh, what, how did it come down? Short version, the court has sided with the president and said it is not a violation of the non-delegation doctrine for Congress to delegate to the president the power to decide when, in the interest of national security, it's appropriate to levy additional imports, uh, tariffs on imports. No great surprise there. Yeah. Um, non delegation, unless you have a sick chicken, it's <laughs> a joke. Uh, you're going to have a hard time. So, with this it. is Cass Sunstein, one of my favorite lines about any Supreme Court doctrine, the non delegation doctrine. It's had one good year and 200 and however many bad ones. Right. Uh, you know, if anybody can bring it back and make it great again. It'll be It'll President be, Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree. All right, we'll talk about that one for sure next week. Yes. Uh, I'll just note, uh, speaking of domestic terrorism, Caesar Sayak, who I mentioned at the top of the show, he's pled guilty to 65 felony counts in front of Judge Rakoff in Manhattan. Uh, this is based on mailing a bunch of IEDs to a variety of, of public figures. He is going to get a life sentence when he's sentenced in September, I'm pretty confident. Um, all right, Steve, we've been talking about some terribly serious stuff. Let's lighten the mood. And for those who don't enjoy the frivolity, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, we've got a ton of frivolity, but we got to make space to talk first and foremost about True Detective Season 3. Okay. All right. Um, I, I am wanting to start by thanking you for getting me and Heather to watch it. We loved it. Good. We just I knew you loved would. It. But I loved it for the acting. I didn't think the plot was all that great in the end, but boy, the acting made it worth every second. And not just, you know, one. Mahershala Ali, I, I had not ever had such a deep dive into uh, his acting before. Unbelievable. Yep. He's absolutely incredible. I, I don't know if he has a peer right now as an actor. Um, but I also thought Stephen Dorff was fantastic. Yes. That was a yes. revelation yes. to yes, me. Yes, yes, yes. Because I expected it from Herschel Ali from, from what I'd yeah. seen in bits and glimpses here and there. I didn't know Stephen Dorff had that in him. That was pretty awesome. Um, the rest, uh, you know, a good, strong supporting cast. But the, the two of them both should win stuff for oh, this. Oh, I mean, stuff, future jobs, admiration, all of the above. All of the above. Get, get, get these men some golden gloves. I mean, I think this says a lot that despite, you know, despite the fact that Karen basically had figured out the plot by the end of the fifth episode yeah. um, and didn't miss much. Yeah. Um, Right, it was still grip. It was still it was still gripping, and yeah. it was still like compelling television because the performances were so good. And I just I you know I felt that way about the first season of True Detective, right? Matthew McConaughey and um, not McConaughey, uh, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, um, and, and McConaughey, right? McConaughey, yeah. right? But yeah. that, that they were so good in the first okay, season. Now, did you see the yeah, awesome the Easter egg where, where the two of them were the visuals yes. in the newspaper yeah, of yeah, the, yeah. there was like the pedophile ring? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I was looking at that and Heather's like, wait, hit pause. I know those guys. Oh, that's Woody Harrelson and Matthew that's McConaughey. Like, that's like the Mike Myers cameo in Bohemian Rhapsody where he's talking, where he's the record company executive who's like, I just can't imagine any kids in the future like playing the song on the radio and banging their heads along That's pretty awesome. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, okay, some other things about the plot. So I think it's fascinating. As near as I could tell, we never learned what happened to his wife. Yes. So the I, I was, there were so many unanswered questions. Like I'm trying, Karen and I at the end of the episode, eight, at the end of the, the season finale, we're like, is there going to be another season with the same storyline? Because there are so many unanswered <laughs> questions. Well, so some of that I liked. Like I, lo- I appreciated the ambiguity, the sort of the sort of Sopranos esque ambiguity of, uh, you know, does uh, does Mahershala Ali's son, you know, ever follow up on that piece of paper to find out what's going on? Do they figure out whether it was th- was the woman he stood there with? Was that really, you know, the missing daughter or was that just yeah. maybe a coincidence? I don't right. know. That whole story maybe was invented out of his delirium. Uh, I thought that was sweet and nice and I liked the way it ended that way. 
Um, but it bugged me that we don't know what actually happened with his I wife because they had mostly difficulty. You get a you get that one random sort of 1990s glimpse where she's on faculty somehow at Arkansas and he's the head of security, and they smile lovingly at each other. It's like they got past their problems, but it doesn't seem like that in the current time. And then then the daughter's happy with him too, or she seems like she's happy with him. Whereas earlier in the show, they seem to be setting it up to where there was a major issue, presumably. Oh, no. I don't know what to do with Presumably that. connected to whatever happened to his wife. And yeah. then that goes away as if, no, no, everything's fine. She yeah. just, it's hard for her to be around him because uh, of his his dementia or Listen, his Alzheimer's. I, there's a lot about the, the season finale in which I was disappointed. But the as a but you know, it doesn't distract from just how, how yeah. much how much how much eye candy it was. Yeah, it was great. Um, so. so two thumbs up. Okay. Um and so my tournament. Okay. Um I lots of chalk. I chalky, had chalky, chalky. I have a very kind of chalky final because I had Duke versus North Carolina in the final. So Duke I'm still Carolina alive four. There. So I think I have Duke versus Tennessee. Who's your who's your final four then? Uh Duke, Tennessee, Carolina and Michigan. That's that's um, so Tennessee got, hurts. Um, and I've got and I've got Tennessee. What do you mean Tennessee hurts? Um, well, no you think they're going to go all the way? I mean, I don't. Know. I hope so. <laughs> Actually, I appreciate that because you know that is Rick Barn, Rick Barnes, former UT coach. Yeah. Uh, although, man, they came close to blowing that game uh, over the weekend. Absolutely. Uh, that I had a K State in my final. Yeah. Oof, ouch. No, I didn't. I think mean, I told you it's my other my other bracket though, or my other half of it. Yeah. Uh, Duke is going to be playing Texas Tech. Oh. In Tech's first Final Four, so Texas, I mean Texas Tech, you know, I think they could do it. They play really good defense. They do, they do. That's my, that's my. If I get that far, I'll be happy to have three out of four. So I have one sort of meta observation about the tournament, and it's just that like I am a big, I am a big believer. At least historically, I have been a big believer in the idea that like mediocre major conference teams get too much love, and like good mid-major teams get you know not enough attention. Yeah, yeah. This year is not doing anything to suggest that I'm right. I mean, because, yeah. you know, all of, like, the interesting... Like Auburn? Mid- uh, no, no, forget yeah. what Auburn, right. Auburn's, Auburn's in, right? Whereas, you know, Belmont and Wofford and Liberty, right? And all of those, like, somewhat, you know, superficially... Com- Buffalo, like, those, those you know, compelling mid-major teams are all... None of them made it to the, to the, to the Sweet 16. Yeah, some came very close. But, you know, that yeah. only counts in horses and hand grenades. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, it, I think it's revealing that, I mean, the of the 16 to 16 teams, right, 14 are from the Power Five conferences. The only two that are not are Gonzaga, which was number one for most of the season, and yeah. Houston, which won 30 games. I mean, yeah. like, you know, this is not a particularly um, satisfying result if you think that the mid-major team, if, if you think that, like, this is not a satisfying result for conference parity. No, that's right. Um, you know, Houston, it's worth a mention there because, you know, the two Texas teams still in it, of course, yeah. being Texas Tech. And traditional power, I think, fair to say, Houston, they've obviously had a lot of rough years. but Five slam jamma. Five slam jamma. It's not like Houston has not been very far into the tournament before. No, I mean, listen, and listen, if Houston had lost to Ohio State, we would have had 15 of the 16 teams being from the Power Five conferences. Yeah. I mean, I just, it's kind of boring. It, it takes a it's little kind of boring. bit. It's not as fun. Like, I feel like the tournament's at its best when you've got the UMBCs and the Loyola Chicago's yeah, yeah. and the everybody loves you know, a Cinderella, right? And and you know what? The highest seeded team that's left is Auburn, or I guess it's Oregon. You mean lowest? It's, seed, uh, lowest seed, the yeah. lowest. Sorry, the lowest yeah. seeded team is Oregon, which oh by the way is the hottest team in the country, right? Which has won eleven straight games, which won the Pac twelve. I mean, right. they peaked it just the right, right time. I mean, that's that, and and they're the only team below the five seed that's now. Left. I don't know. I don't know the story with them, but it, my understanding is they were not likely to make it at all. They weren't even necessarily bubble material. No, no, if no. They, they were out the, if they hadn't yeah. won the tournament. Now Oregon's a weird team because they started the season like really highly touted, and then their absolute best player had a season-ending injury. Bowl, bowl. Do you know who Bol 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 is? He related to Manute Bol's son. Oh, that is awesome. So Bol Bol is Oregon's like star, and he hurt his foot, and so like he's been sitting out the rest of the year, and he's getting ready for the NBA lottery now. So it took the, the team some time to figure out how to how exactly. To win Dana, I think Dana Jacobson's our coach. He's talking about how like it took him like a month to figure out like what their identity was going to be without yeah. Bol Bol, and then they just got hot and. You know, I, so all this is to say, when Oregon is the only team with a plausible Cinderella claim, and they've yeah, been yeah. the hottest team in the country since right. January, I don't get all like I, I don't get excited about this. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I'm, I'm it's still I'd still rather watch this in the NIT though. Texas well, is still alive in that one. That is true. Yeah, but I, I just you know, I, I, part of why I love the NCAA tournament is its randomness. And when 14 of the 16 teams in the Sweet 16 are, you know, when when 14 of the top 16 seeds make it to the Sweet 16, and one of the other two 
is a five seed yeah. and the other is, you know, the hottest team in the country. That's just that's not that doesn't seem random to me. Well, um, should we close out? How, how long have we been going here? Uh, we one hour, two minutes. All right, real do, quick. Do we have some predictions? No, no, no. Real quick on our, our spring breaks. Uh, oh. So you we're not making predictions. Were you at Disney? Uh, yeah. So we went to LA Be- for a couple days. Best ride. What was your favorite? Dude, I was there with a three-year-old and a nine-month-old. So teacups. And, um, uh, we didn't even make it to the teacups. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a small, small world. It's a. I love it's a small right? world. Yeah. Um, I, so Disney was quite the experience. Um, Maddie, I think it's safe to say, was quite overwhelmed. Um, I think the hardest part of the LA trip was um, Sydney, our nine-month-old, basically staying on Central Time the whole time. Oh, that's fine. So she woke up at four o'clock every morning. Yay! Let's go. Um, and basically, to to prevent her from waking everybody else up, I took her on. Uh, drives. So, so Cindy got to see LA in the dark. Nice. We, did, we did a we did a freeway tour in the dark. You can see some interesting things at four thirty in LA. Not from not from the four hundred five, my friend. <laughs> not from the four hundred five. Hey, but the traffic was as light as you've ever seen. Well, probably. So that's, so that's the thing. So yeah, it was actually not so hard to get around. Right at four o'clock on Sunday morning, it actually is possible to drive around LA without traffic. That's that's really funny. Well, uh, as promised, I I was in Vegas for one day last week. Indeed, we went to Hall and Oats, which was doing a they were doing a residency at uh, Caesar's Palace. So a couple observations. One, it's been a long time since I've been to Vegas, and I've forgotten how much I just can't stand the pervasive <laughs> smoking. Yes. God, you cannot get away from it. It drives me nuts. Um, so that was too bad. The concert was fun. It was exactly whatever you're picturing a Hall & Oates concert at Caesars Palace would be like. It was pretty much that. Um, th- they play a lot of songs you know. The, the uh, age of Daryl Hall and John Oates, I think both in their 70s, very impressive that they're still up there rocking out. Uh, John Oates in particular just was seemed like he was really having a good time. Daryl Hall seemed like he was kind of struggling as the as the evening went on. He uh, sang less and less and began um, more saying the lines on mm-hmm. certain of the high notes. And it was clear his voice was giving out. Uh, and then the, the sort of funniest slash saddest aspect of that was during the encore, he was in the middle of you know some song you know. And I, I could see him motioning to someone off stage, pointing at his throat, basically saying like, "I'm I'm done. I can't I can't go." And as soon as that song ended, he sort of waved his hands at the crowd, ran off stage, and then almost immediately was brought back out because clearly their contract was three songs for the encore, <laughs> or else somebody just prevailed on him. And he kind of said, "Okay, <clears throat> I'm back. <laughs> One more song." And uh, you know, I I'm glad I got to see him. Uh, they didn't hold up as well as, as say, Guns N' Roses did when I saw them last year on the uh, <laughs> on a. Granted, it's a much younger set, Indeed. but probably pushed it a little bit harder in their day. So I don't know if I should keep going to these nostalgia shows. I may have to go see some real actual young bands or like a cover band, like a really good cover band. Yeah, there you go. So exactly. you know, Karen and I are talking about going to Vegas for my 40th birthday, which unfortunately is is not 10 years away. Um, <laughs> And and one I of can the barely remember mine. <laughs> um, so one of the shows um, that we're thinking that you know we're trying to figure out what yeah, what, what, show? what show to go to. Um, so Queen with Adam Lambert. Oh, interesting. And what? I'm I'm actually I think I'm super intrigued by this prospect. So he didn't he perform with them at the, at the at the Oscars? Oscars? Yeah, right. He's right. Pretty good. He was pretty good. I mean, listen, nobody no, is going to be Freddie, Freddie Mercury. Mercury. I mean, unless, yeah. you know, when you have a four octave range, you can do some stuff that nobody Man, else can I, do. I wish I had a one octave. I was going to say I have like a half an octave range. Um, sometimes at night, uh, when I have to get Cindy back down, I sing "O Canada" to her. Oh yeah. Oh, and Karen, Karen, when I first started doing this with Maddie, when Maddie was a baby, asked me why the hell I was singing the Canadian national anthem. I said, "Cause it's in my range, it's baby." In your range. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love George Strait songs. All right. Um, I so think so, that, so I think, I think Queen with Adam Lambert might be the top uh, of our that, list. I think you should do it. You should do yeah, it. Yeah. She's trying what, to, what's, com- what's competing with that? I, I don't – She there's somebody um, – is it, is it Britney who's there? Somebody's somebody's there. Some some pop diva um, is there who Karen is more interested in. I'm like, dude. It's your birthday. My birthday. Yeah. Well, a Britney <laughs> show. No, that would be very entertaining Although, as well. Although, I mean, we both know, like, my birthday is really, you know, her birthday. Well, good man. Uh, um so I will be interested to see what you end up doing there. I'll send you ten dollars. Right, really quickly, final four predictions. Um, you're, you're sticking oh, you with. Mean like, can I, mean, I revise? Well, I mean, I'm well, you, can't, with, I mean okay. you can't. You can't stick with Kansas State. No, this is a good point. Because they're home for the summer. Um, no. Let's see which bracket were they? That was uh, that. Okay, Villanova, so, okay, so okay. I'm taking Villanova out of that bracket. Uh, Villanova's. Villanova lost. What? No, no, no. Good sure? luck. You sure? <laughs> yes, I'm sure Damn. Villanova lost. That, okay, can I revise my bracket again? <laughs> All right. Wait, who, who, beats, who beat Villanova? Um, who beat Villanova? Whoever the higher-seeded team was in their uh, – who beat Villanova? Da, 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 da. Hold on a second. Villanova lost to – where is this? 
Damn it. Um, Nova lost to Purdue. Hmm. All right, so starting in that region, you've got UVA, Oregon, Purdue, and Tennessee. God, that's a mess. I, I would take Tennessee out of that bunch. Exactly. I, I don't believe in UVA that's correct. after they, yeah. Okay, uh, in the Midwest, Carolina, Auburn, Houston, and Kentucky. Oh, Carolina still. Oh, correct. See, look who's Brad. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, in the West, Gonzaga, Florida State, Texas Tech, and Michigan. Red Raiders, baby! So I've got Michigan. So that Michigan-Texas yeah. Tech game is going to be quite the yeah, yeah. quite the scene. And then the East, Duke, Vatek, LSU, and Michigan State. Duke. Duke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So, 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 so the difference between you and me is that Texas Tech Michigan game. Basically. All right. That's good. Drama. Right, let's get a bet. Uh, lunch. Done. All right. Go blue. Somewhere somewhere affordable. Um, <laughs> Torchies. Not if I win. All right. <laughs> on that note, uh, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Uh, it's a good time to be recommending podcasts to your friends. So it is that time of year. Spread the word. Why not recommend us? Exactly. I think I know why, but let's not say it out loud. <laughs> this is why. Stay safe out there. Adios.